Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, a look at a variety of psalms. The psalms are the prayers of God's people, encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. It's great to be here. My name is Philip Moore, and um, I, most of you probably don't know me, but many of you do. Um, if you want to, to kind of see uh, my connection to this church, you can go back to Brett's teachings between 2006 and 2010, and occasionally you'll hear him say, Philip, change the slide. Um, so that's, <clears throat> that's when I was here. I was a student at St. John's College, graduated. My wife as well, who is, um, I think, with our uh, 14-month-old son right now, Thomas. Uh, Becca is here as well. She was with me. We moved to Mississippi. Um, eventually went to seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary. And right now I'm a PhD student at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, an irregular preacher. And you'll see what I mean when I say that. But uh, the, the, um, the joy is mine to see this church change so much after, after those years. To see growth, to see change, to see um, relationships being formed that um, just weren't here when, when I was here. Um, a new building is, is great, too. Um, so the, it's, it's really a joy for me to see God's work among you at this church. Um, and if you have any questions for me, of course, we can uh, talk after the service. I'd love to talk more with you. Today, we're looking at Psalm 102, a sufferer's prayer. And the psalm which I'm about to read fits the pattern of a prayer of lament, at the beginning of the series, Tony started off with what might be the darkest of the prayers of lament, Psalm 88. That psalm brings us into the feeling of forsakenness. And there, even there, thanks to Tony's exposition, we see shining Jesus Christ, who entered into that horrible depth with us and for us. And Psalm 102 does something similar. However, not all laments are the same, and that's because not all griefs and sorrows and sufferings are the same. God's work is wondrously manifold and diverse, and he deals with each of us exactly the way we need. So unlike Psalm 88, which is a crisis of faith of the priestly Haman the Ezraite, Psalm 102 identifies itself much more generally. As the superscription tells us, it is a prayer of a suffering person. And that superscription means that Psalm 102 is written by a sufferer, and it's also written for sufferers like you and me that we could make it our own prayer. And more specifically, uh, this prayer is one that a sufferer can pray when weak, pouring out his lament before the Lord. I love that image of pouring out lament. It re might remind you of the way that this church has a catechism defining prayer in general, and that's on the screen as well. Prayer is conversation with God in which believers Pour out our hearts to God in the name of Christ in praise, confession of sin, petition, and thanksgiving, and through which our desires are changed to conform with the will of God. So all prayer is, in a sense, a pouring out of one's heart, and Psalm 102 in particular is a pouring out of the heart's sorrow and suffering to God. Now keep in mind this image of pouring out the heart as we read Psalm 102. And today I'll read from the Christian Standard Bible, which is a newer translation uh, projected on the screen. Now attend thoughtfully and carefully to God's good, precious, inerrant, and trustworthy word in Psalm 102. A prayer of a suffering person who is weak and pours out his lament before the Lord. Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come before you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Listen closely to me. Answer me quickly when I call. For my days vanish like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is suffering, withered like grass. I even forget to eat my food. Because of the sound of my groaning, my flesh sticks to my bones. I am like an eagle owl, like a little owl among the ruins. I stay awake. I am like a solitary bird on a roof. My enemies taunt me all day long. They ridicule and use my name as a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle my drinks with tears because of your indignation and wrath. For you have picked me up and thrown me aside. My days are like a lengthening shadow, 
and I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your fame endures to all generations. You will rise up and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For your servants take delight in its stones and favor its dust. Then the nations will fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion. He will appear in his glory. He will pay attention to the prayer of the destitute and will not despise their prayer. This will be written for a later generation and a people who have not yet been created will praise the Lord. He looked down from his holy heights. The Lord gazed out from heaven to earth to hear a prisoner's groaning to set free those condemned to die, so that they might declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when peoples and kingdoms are assembled to serve the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. I say, my God, do not take me in the middle of my life. Your years continue through all generations. Long ago you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Your servants' children will dwell securely, and their offspring will be established before you. Now may God bless the reading of his word, that we may be encouraged in the gift of repentance and faith. So let's return to that image of pouring out the heart. Imagine a small child with a cup full of milk. Not a sippy cup, but a big kid cup. And you might look at that situation and you'd say, I know exactly where this is going to end up. On the carpet. Somebody get the cup from the child, right? Things that are full up like that, they're going to tip over. And the heart of the psalmist is like that little kid's cup, except his cup is full of troubles. Full uh, to the brim, really, with regrets and pain. He's tired of balancing his cup. He's exhausted from the weight of it all. And the time has come to tip that cup over. The cup of his heart is full of sorrow, loneliness, humiliation, shame, and even the fear of death. And because God is a good and merciful king reigning on the throne, the suffering psalmist has hope for favor and mercy vindication, glory, freedom from the fear of death, and in the end, assurance that God's people will somehow dwell securely in his presence. The suffering psalmist has invited all who are like him to share his prayer. And so today, through the infallible word of Psalm 102, the Holy Spirit is teaching us who suffer how to pour out our lament. And he's also teaching how to minister to others in the midst of their suffering. Now, my exposition today will circle around one main point. I want to draw our attention to, to one facet of this multifaceted jewel of a psalm. That main point is this. The pattern of this sufferer's prayer matches the fundamental pattern of the life of faith. See, the sufferer's prayer can be summed up by what Peter says, which will be projected on the screen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Peter here commands us to humble ourselves. And how do we do that? Well, verse 7 tells us that first and foremost, we humble ourselves by means of prayer, by means of casting our cares our anxieties, our worries upon the God who is both mighty and caring, both powerful and compassionate. And that's what biblical lament is. Humbly turning to the Almighty God, humbly complaining to Him and casting our cares upon Him, humbly asking for help and humbly continuing to trust in Him despite the difficulty of our circumstances. And the result of this self-humbling is that God will, when the time is perfect, bring about exaltation. Before I get into the details of the psalm, I want to give you one thing to visualize this pattern, and I put a little rendition up on the screen. Uh, When I taught young children in a Christian after-school program in Philadelphia, I called it the Nike swoosh. No brand endorsement (laughs) intended. Uh, Paul Miller, more wisely, calls it the J-curve. In his book, J-curve, he has a subtitle that really gets at the point. 
dying and rising with Jesus in everyday life. The Nike swoosh or J-curve is a simple diagram of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And by extension, it's a diagram of the life of faith, both in its long arc over our whole lives and in its day-to-day outworking. Jesus taught his disciples on the Emmaus Road that it was necessary for him first to suffer and then enter into his glory. That's the swoosh or curve of his twofold ministry in humiliation and exaltation. He also taught that all who follow him follow the same swoosh or curve through humiliation and self-denial and even death into exaltation and glorification and eternal life. This cross-bearing walk, this pattern of discipleship that Jesus taught over and over again is an essential part of the message of the apostles. Take, for example, Paul's testimony, which will be on the screen. I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Do you see the swoosh or curve? Paul suffers in order to know Christ. Paul believes that he shares in Christ's sufferings and that faith has the power to transform even death into the road to Christ-likeness. The whole Christian life, in its totality and day by day, should be a continual participation in this swoosh or curve through humiliation to glory. Sometimes we suffer in repentance because of our own sins and their consequences. Sometimes we suffer because of the brokenness of the world and the sins of others. But in all cases, because of Christ's atoning work, by faith we can lay hold of the pattern in which faithful suffering leads to glory. Biblical lament is prayer that by faith takes hold of the exalted Christ in the midst of our humiliation. And in doing so, our lives are conformed to Christ's own pattern of suffering leading to glory. You getting the point yet? And though our psalmist is writing before the coming of Christ, by the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, his lament is a foreshadowing of the work of Christ and a model for us here and now. So let's examine the text just a little bit more closely as we train our minds to enter into this Christ-like pattern of prayer and life. As I said before, the superscription, which I labeled verse zero on the slide, identifies the psalmist as someone growing weak and weary from suffering and unable to contain the troubles that have filled up the cup of his heart. It's all going to come spilling out. And it's best to pour it out before the Lord. That's an important point to dwell on for just a moment. The psalmist could rant to the wind and rave to the world, but he's not just getting something off his chest because it feels good to vent. The psalm is not a therapeutic self-help exercise. The psalmist has chosen not to search for resources in the world or in his own heart. He's moving from a place of suffering through God's promises toward greater trust in relationship with God. Biblical lament, which is the only kind of lament that's warranted for Christians, is always, always, always prayer. Not a psychological exercise, but person-to-person conversation with God. Our God has invited and even commanded his people to ask, to seek, to knock. That's the psalmist's first impulse. In verse 2, the psalmist parallels the day when I have trouble with the day when I call. The word day is there twice in Hebrew. For him, the, the day of trouble is right away the day of asking God for help. The time of suffering is the time of seeking God's face. The season of desperation is the season of knocking relentlessly on the door of the heavenly court. The psalmist begins his asking, seeking, and knocking with a string of requests that increase in intensity. What starts as prayer becomes a cry for help. What starts as hear my prayer becomes listen closely to me, which in Hebrew is extend your ear to me. What starts as the negative do not hide your face from me becomes the positive answer me quickly. The intensity is building. The cup of his heart is tipping over and God is about to hear 
about the acute and difficult suffering that this man has. Now look how the psalmist describes himself and his situation in verses 3 through 11. He mentions mortality, verses 3 and 11, pain, uh, verse 3, despair, verse 4, physical and emotional exhaustion, verse 5, loneliness, verses uh, 6 and 7, humiliation, verse 8, and to compound problem on top of problem, he still has regret over sins that have incurred God's indignation and wrath in verses 9 and 10. The overall feeling that this sufferer has about his situation is one of deserved forsakenness. To God, he says in verse 10, you have picked me up and thrown me aside. He's not accusing God of something unjust. Rather, God has put this man to the test, and this man realizes that he himself has been found wanting. Why would God do that? Why would that happen? So that the man would come to see himself rightly. He would forsake his resources and pride. He would become poor in spirit in order to rely on the only reliable thing, the everlasting God. And though God has brought the psalmist low, though the psalmist feels the sting of his failure in God's testing, God hasn't let him go and hasn't abandoned him. The psalmist confesses exactly how he feels, picked up yet thrown aside. But what's he doing? He's confessing it, right? He's talking to God. He knows that his sin, which bears bitter fruit in his life, is not too much for God to overcome. He feels cast aside, yet he speaks as if he's standing before a throne of grace. And these are the conditions in which faithful lament arises. Lament is the transition between the crises and complaints brought about by suffering to the confession of trust in the one who uses suffering for our ultimate good. From our perspective in the New Covenant, lament is prayer by which a sufferer swings down the swoosh or curve toward Christ's cross, and the cross becomes a prism through which we can catch a glimpse of that sure and solid hope of glory. The faithful sufferer trusts God even to the point of death, and he knows that suffering and death are not all that God has for him. This brings us to verse 12. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. In verse 12, this contrast, this movement from complaint to confession, or rather confession in the midst of complaint, is key to the difference between venting your feelings and pouring out a lament before the Lord. This part of the pattern of the lament prayer looks like this. God, I'm suffering, but you are unshakable. I'm faithless, but you are faithful. I'm dying, but you live forever. And if there's any chance that I can be something other than suffering, faithless, and mortal, it has to be with you. Somehow, 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 it has to be with you. We'll talk about that somehow later on. For now, we just need to see how this suffering psalmist pours out the lament of his heart and then fills his heart with a meditation on the being and character of God. This God will rise up and have compassion on Zion. Not merely because the psalmist wishes it were so, but because his constant and faithful God has promised to do so on the basis of the covenant with David. You might ask, as we sang about in in one of the songs this morning, what is Zion? What's this Zion that God will have compassion on for David's sake? Is it a hill in Palestine? Is it the city of Jerusalem built by human hands? The earthly Zion... Jerusalem was always a shadow and type of the heavenly one, which is described in Hebrews chapter 12. There the writer says that we in the new covenant have access in Christ to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does that reveal about Zion? Zion is the name for God's eternal dwelling that he shares with his people. When you read in the Psalter that God will bring blessing to Zion, know that whatever temporary blessing might have been given to the earthly hill in Palestine was a reflection and foreshadowing of his ultimate, final work for the whole people of God. So in Psalm 102, when it says God will have compassion on Zion in verse 13 and will rebuild Zion in verse 16, it concerns both the rebuilding of the earthly Jerusalem and the final preservation and vindication of God's people in the future the preservation and vindication of what would, become to, what would come to be called the church, 
And I want to dwell on that point for just one moment. Notice that the sufferer does not appeal to private promises or an individual covenant with God, but to the Zion covenant, the arrangement that God made with King David and his sons who would serve as representatives of Israel. Psalm 102's back and forth between individual and corporate dimensions of redemption brings up a profound theological truth. The hope for the faithful individual is tied inextricably to the redemption of the whole people of God. There is no purely private relationship with God. If you're in fellowship with God, then you're brought into fellowship with his people. It's by means of your incorporation into God's people that you are saved along with them. That's the theological truth that we see behind the metaphors of the church as Christ's body or the church as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying that formal church membership is a prerequisite to being saved by Jesus. I am saying that those who are saved are joined to the universal church. They are united to Christ and to his people by grace and through faith. The truth behind this psalmist combination of his personal lament and his prayers for Zion show that he doesn't seek only what God has for himself. He doesn't say, God, you owe me. I deserve better. He says, save me because I'm one of your people by grace, because you've incorporated me into the flock over which you're the shepherd. And that's why the sufferer mentions himself among God's servants in verse 14. That's why he blends the prayer of the destitute, the Hebrew being singular, with their prayer in verse 17. The the suffering psalmist sees himself as part of a larger organism, a grander plan in which God works salvation for his whole people. Even unbelieving Gentiles will be brought to fear God by witnessing his salvation of the whole of Zion. That is, by witnessing the advance of the kingdom as he works in and through his people. By the way, that's the story of the book of Acts up to our day. The Christians are really in a similar covenantal arrangement. We don't look for special promises of God that belong only to ourselves. The only way that we can expect blessing is in connection with a mediator who has himself received all good things. If you're a Christian, then you are, by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ, in whom we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1.3. So what's the basis of our hope of glory? It's being found in Jesus Christ, who preserves his body, the church. What's the basis of our growth in grace? It's that the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ, the mediator of God's presence to his temple, the church. What's the basis of our appeal to God for help in the midst of our particular sufferings? It's that our great high priest in the heavenly places, Jesus Christ, is interceding day and night without tiring, without interruption, with perfect prayers for his whole church. If we are in union with Christ, then we are part of the church and our prayers for personal healing and deliverance, just like the psalmist, come to sound a lot more like, let your kingdom come. And the same line of reasoning is where the psalmist, uh, uh, why the psalmist continues in verses 18 through 22. In these verses, the sufferer's concern is that God would be praised in the future. He keeps in mind that grand plan for God's redemption. The sufferer is not only envisioning individuals in the future who haven't been born yet, but also a whole people whom God will create for his praise. And that people will include, as verse 22 says, even Gentiles like us. The language here suggests that this new people will be created in a way similar to the Exodus, the calling out of Egypt in the book that we call Exodus. The huge scope of the psalmist's vision of redemption connects to the profound depth of his suffering. The suffering psalmist has experienced things so difficult that the only deliverance great enough to heal his wounds would be a new and second exodus that overcomes death itself, verse 20. And I'll pause here to say that there are some traumas that can't be just simply erased. We can't simply say it will pass to the person who's experienced betrayal in marriage the loss of a child, the horrors of war, abuse of church leaders who are supposed to be holy, 
or chronic and debilitating pain. I think Tolkien got it right when he portrays Frodo Baggins at the end of The Lord of the Rings as unable to go back to life as usual. Frodo couldn't ignore the scars of his encounter with evil. And in truth, some sufferers come to know deep down that there is nothing that will make the pain go away completely in this world. For they have to put all their hope in another world, a better world, a world that is promised to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And the saints who deal with traumatic suffering, by God's grace, do get glimmers of that better world. And there is daily bread for us to endure and even to grow. But those glimmers are always pointing onward and upward. And that daily bread is always the bread of sojourners who are on their way with their hearts set on their real home. And to those who are struggling with deep wounds like the ones I'm describing this morning, let me pause to point you and myself again to Jesus Christ. The scars on his hands and feet, the hole in his side, they remained even after his resurrection with a glorious body. It wasn't because he's not powerful enough to make his body any way he wished. His scars are for you. Those scars bear witness to the goodness and faithfulness of God, to the power and love in that saving work, to Jesus' authority and perfection as your mediator. The trauma of his suffering has, by God's miraculous power, redounded to God's glory and does have a beautiful resolution, but the signs of that trauma have not and will never disappear. Yes, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yet he wipes them away one by one, so to speak, so that every tear ultimately bears witness to the infinite kindness of Christ, who made himself like us in suffering, so that we who suffer would find eternal comfort in him. Now, because this psalmist is suffering in that profound way as well, it's appropriate that he returns to his present situation in verse 23. And for, from verses 23 and 24, many commentators think that he's suffering from a terminal illness of some kind. And that may be the case. But remember that these kinds of psalms are general enough that anyone reading them can see themselves in them. So a medical diagnosis isn't necessary to understand what this man thinks. He thinks his life is too short. And that's true. Every human life in this sin-broken world is too short in light of what we were created and designed for. Amen. We were created and designed to glorify God and to enjoy him fully forever. Amen. And may we never be satisfied with the 70 or 80 years that Moses complains about in Psalm 90, which Bobby noted a few weeks ago. His lesson about learning to number our days is an exercise to prepare our hearts to long for the endless day of eternal life with God in Jesus Christ. And the sufferer in Psalm 102 like Moses in Psalm 90, confesses that there's nothing eternal except God alone. So unlike his own situation. God's years, a big time measurement, continue through all generations, whereas even the psalmist's days, a short time measurement, have been shortened. The psalmist is going to die. Even the earth and the heavens, among the most stable things in human experience, will perish. If those seemingly permanent things will perish, how much more so all the inhabitants of the earth and the heavens? The most stable things wear out like clothing, and God tosses them off when they get old, and they pass away. So how much more is that true of sinful flesh and blood like us? But God remains just as he is. As in Psalm 90, this confession of God's constancy and God's eternity is the ground for the final term, turn of hope at the end of Psalm 102. And look carefully with me at verse 28. I'll read it. Your servants' children will dwell securely, and their offspring will be established before you. The focus on children and offspring is an appeal back through many covenantal promises given to David, Israel, Abraham, and even farther back to the promise given to the first woman that her offspring would take hold of the serpent's head as the serpent goes after his heel, in Genesis 3.15. The psalmist knows that as long as the chosen line of offspring goes on, there is hope for the promised redemption. The psalmist can be certain that there is an appointed time for the restoration of Zion, 
for the reconstitution of God's people along with Gentile worshipers. In short, for the coming of the kingdom of God. And while the sufferer laments that he might not see that day with his own eyes, he walks by faith in its certain arrival. And how can that be? How can the offspring have such a guarantee of safety when the psalmist's own life is like smoke, like a lengthening shadow in the evening and withering grass? The answer is not stated explicitly in Psalm 102. At this stage in covenantal history, the psalmist doesn't know the means of God's salvation. He knows that God will save and renew, but he doesn't know how he's going to do it. He knows that somehow, just like Moses in Psalm 90, the eternal God presents himself as a hideout or refuge for weak, transient, even sinful people. The only hope that sinful, mortal humans have of living forever has to be found in the holy and merciful God who remains the same from generation to generation. To be wrapped up in him or to be united to him somehow, only with such a faith can the sufferer find hope in the face of his own death. And hear good news. The chain of offspring for which the psalmist prays, the object of all of his hope, comes to its goal in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man. In his incarnation, he is the promised offspring of the woman who has overcome the enemy Satan to vindicate God's people. He is the cornerstone laid in Zion to set the foundation of God's holy temple, his renewed people, his church. He has accomplished this wondrous work because he became a sufferer, even a man of sorrow. He was weak. He poured out his lament before the Father. He entered into sorrow, loneliness, humiliation, shame, and he stayed faithful to his mission to the point of death, even a gruesome and horrific and traumatic death on a cross. Jesus had no sin of his own, yet he still experienced indignation and wrath when he gave his life as a ransom for sinners like you and me. Dying on the cross, Jesus took up both the sufferer's lament and his confession of trust. Both the feeling of being picked up and thrown away and the faithful, but you, Lord. Remember, on the cross, he prayed both, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus not only imitated that the faithful sufferer's prayers, he also substantiated the sufferer's hope. He gave solidity and assurance to that confession of trust. Jesus has indeed arisen and had compassion on Zion, arisen from the dead with resurrection life. He has received the promised reward for perfect obedience, and because he secured it through that obedient humiliation, he compassionately turns back to lowly sinners like you and me and shares his glory with all who put their trust in him. That's an offering that's good for ancient psalmists and for those who are listening to this sermon today. Jesus has given substance to the pattern of lament by embodying it in the swoosh or curve of his humiliation and exaltation. And all who follow him must follow in the way of lament, lamenting our sins, lamenting the injustices and difficulties of this broken world, lamenting the state of the lost around us. Our lament is not a mere somberness or a whining complaint, but a pattern by which we pour out our hearts to God and are conformed more and more to the likeness of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus through suffering into glory, or if you've wavered on that path, I encourage you to find me or one of the elders of this church later on and talk with us about this once-suffering, now-glorified Lord and Savior who is calling you or calling you back through his word. And now along the way, I've suggested a few ways in which we can apply this text. Um, And in closing, I want to make those applications explicit through two questions. First question, should Christians who have this marvelous hope and and trust in Jesus engage in lament? Well, (laughs) amen. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Now, if 
if the good news is that you can live your best life now, or that you're victorious in Jesus and therefore shouldn't suffer, or that God has a wonderful plan for your life that you just need to realize, to name and claim, or to work diligently and prudently to achieve, then there's no room for lament. But none of those things that I just mentioned is the good news of God. Take a glance at Paul's one-sentence summary of the good news found in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So as long, as long as there's still a struggle against sin, as there was for Paul the Apostle, there's a place for Christian lament. And here's how the dynamic works for Christians. The good news becomes better and better the more we are able to realize the depth and darkness of our own sin. Not that we go on sinning, of course, but that we more, more clearly see the corruption in our hearts and our need for Jesus every day. Again, I say maturity in faith is not struggling against sin less often. Nope. Rather, it's struggling against sin more constantly as you become aware of the greater extent of the corruption in your heart and the greater and greater and greater grace that is extended to you as daily bread in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take one step back and also say that as long as there's suffering, suffering and tribulation of any kind, regardless of whether it's caused by your sin, lament is called for. As long as this world is not what it should be, as long as it's not what it will be when Jesus returns, we should be engaging in lament. We should occasionally have minor key songs in corporate worship. We should have corporate prayers where elders pour out laments before God on behalf of the church or the community or the nation or the world. We should, in our private prayers, lift up our situation and those of others with the same kind of complaint as our Lord did on the cross. With that full confidence that we are on the path of that swoosh or curve, participating in the Lord's suffering in order to participate also in his glory, as Paul said in Philippians 3. In fact, we have greater ground for confidence than the psalmist. For the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is a rock-solid guarantee of the destiny of those who cling to God in faith. The foundation of Zion is already laid. The great temple is already going up. The nations are already coming to worship the one true God in spirit and truth. We have such advantage in that turn of lament now as we move through our complaint to the but you, Lord, of trust in his promises. I'm not saying that's merely licit or permissible for suffering Christians to pray in the mode of lament. I'm saying that if you're suffering, Christian, you should be pouring out your lament before your loving Heavenly Father through your exalted Lord in accord with the groaning spirit within you. Christianity is not Stoicism or Buddhism or anything like that. We have no biblical warrant for saying, my suffering is just an illusion I can ignore. Or... I shouldn't feel, let alone express, sorrow. If that were the case, we can throw out the lives of the patriarchs, King David, most of the Psalms, every single one of the prophets and apostles, and the example of Jesus Christ. From Genesis 3 until the final day described at the end of the book of Revelation, prayers of lament are a normal and good part of the saints' communion with God. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Of course, he's not telling you to make a show of being miserable, but rather to honestly look at your heart and the world around you and let what you see move you to a sufferer's prayer like Psalm 102. That connection is really clearer than we think in English. The word that Jesus uses in the first beatitude, you know, the poor, is the same one that's in the superscription of Psalm 102 in the Greek Old Testament. The Greek says this, the prayer of the poor whenever he is languishing and pours out his request before the Lord. The sufferer of Psalm 102 is the poor in spirit of Jesus' beatitude. Lament is not an optional extra for Christians, but a characterization of the normal life of faith on this side of eternity. And if we don't engage in lament, if we don't say this is not right about the brokenness of our lives and the world, 
then we will never understand what John means at the end of the book of Revelation when the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Only those whose hope is not in this transient world will know how to long for the eternal one. For where your resources are, there your heart will be also. And as the Catechism teaches, pouring out our lament is also a means through which our desires are, con- are to conform, they're changed to conform to the likeness of our Lord, who has himself moved from lament to glory. If we don't engage in lament, we, are, uh, we risk falling into a spin-off of Christianity that doesn't understand Jesus' humiliation and doesn't lead other people down the hard and narrow path toward his real exaltation. And for our failure to lament, for our unwillingness to look honestly at ourselves and the world, here is a call to repentance for you and for me. We turn again to Lord Jesus, whose perfect prayers, both his past lament here on earth and his intercession now in heaven, cover your failure and my failure and bring us into greater reliance upon his spirit, even to lament. Now, my second and final question is aimed more at the person this morning who doesn't feel acute suffering right now. And the question is this, will you lament with those who are suffering? It would be a shame, think Book of Job, if someone overheard the sufferer of Psalm 102 and said in reply to his prayer, cheer up, man, things will get better. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It would be even worse if someone said, You shouldn't let yourself get so down. The life of faith is about joy. Aren't you glad about what God does for you? Aren't you thankful? Now, it's right to give thanks to the Lord for his wondrous works, and it's right to find deep joy in God's promises. Those are good things, but those are not things that we should command the sufferer to muster up. If the sufferer is especially gracious, commands like that will bounce right off, and they won't even hear you saying them. (laughs) But more often than not, it will strike them as trite, as if you haven't really listened to their pain. It will add, as we say, insult to injury. And I'll put it this way, God doesn't tell the sufferer simply to cheer up. He calls the sufferer to pour out his heart before him, to remember his promises and works, and to trust him despite the difficulty and the suffering in this moment. And that's what we are to encourage others to do. Can you lead a friend who has just found out about an adulterous spouse in a prayer that involves complaint and confession of trust? Can you direct a Christian convicted in his heart of egregious sin to pour out his heart to God in remorse and repentance? Can you linger in sorrow with someone waiting year after year for children or someone yearning year after year for a wayward child's return to express their frustration in faithful prayer? When someone's at a loss for words because of extreme trauma or shocking development or long-term grievance, we can love them by helping them voice their complaint to God because doing so is helping them to pray, to look to the only one who can heal and will heal. And for our past triteness and flippancy with sufferers, here's a call to repentance for you and for me. We turn again to Lord Jesus, whose own suffering made him a perfect advocate, a perfect minister, a perfect counselor to bring those who suffer into his eternal glory and joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your good and precious word delivered to us by your Spirit and fulfilled in the work of your Son. May your glory shine even as we suffer here, that you might give us strength to endure in faith to the glorious end of fellowship with you, together with the Son and the Spirit, one God, blessed forever. Amen. What a great message, huh? Let's thank Phil for for coming today. Isn't it, isn't it a wonderful thing that God gives people a talent and a passion for sharing his word? Uh, as I listen to Phil talk about suffering and humility and, and pain and faith, I uh, was reminded of, of Job 
Uh, he mentioned Job. The book of Job, like Psalm 102 and, and the other Psalms of lament, tells us the truth about, about trouble. Job 5.7 says, Man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. According to the Scriptures, we are destined for trouble. It's not that some good or clever people avoid it and, and other people the evil and the wicked stumble into it. The one certain thing in life is that we're going to know trouble, which I guess makes death and taxes a subset for trouble. (laughs) But we have a hard time hearing that, don't we? We want to believe that life is easy, that it's basically good. It's just all comfort and security and prosperity. We find it hard to hear the truth that man is born for trouble. And that denial of reality gets us into even more trouble because we all will eventually know pain and suffering and heartache and despair and grief and difficulty. Life is hard. But as Phil told us this morning, pain can give us a new vantage point to see God's goodness or it can cause us to lose perspective. If you're a, if you're a believer, like the writer of, of Psalm 102, trouble can remind us that the world doesn't have the answers, that God has the answers. But that's not really the problem in our society today, is it? We cling to the belief. Our temptation is to believe life should be good, and so it must be God who's bad. He must be malicious or cruel or hard to allow our trouble. And if we think like that, we've turned reality on its head. Because it's not that life is good and God is bad. The Bible tells us life is hard, but God is good. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Psalm 102. Life's hard, but God is good. Or as Job 5.7 puts it, Man is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. But just as those sparks rise, Christ tells us that someday, so will we. So if you believe that, then you are welcome at this table. This is where we're reminded that while life is hard, your God quite literally loves you to death. And though you share in his sufferings, as Phil reminded us from 1 Peter today, you also can be sure of sharing in his glory. If you don't believe that or don't know what I'm talking about, then as Phil mentioned, you should see one of us because we would love to talk to you about who Jesus Christ is. There is no more question in your life more important than who God is and what he offers and let me say this, if, if, if you're suffering, then this table is a place you can come to find true peace and true joy. And listen, if, if all you're ever doing is praying lament, then something's wrong. But if you're never praying lament, then something's wrong. We're all on this journey. Many of us are on it together. But it's not a day at the beach for any of us. But you can be sure in the love of your Savior. And if you don't know Jesus, please, as we said, see one of us after this. We would love to chat with you. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
please, uh, you can prepare your wafer, and we'll take it together after we pray. Father God, our trouble reminds us that we are weak and frail. Would you give us a vision, Father, of your goodness and your grace? Would you help us to see the glory of your kingdom so we might not lose hope, but be assured of sharing in the glory of Christ as you've promised? Take and eat. Dearest Jesus, we attest that you are the only truly innocent sufferer. You led the perfect life free from sin that we could not. You died the death that should have been ours. You made us heirs in a kingdom that we can never imagine. Jesus, would you remind us that even in our suffering, your love knows no bounds. Your grace knows no constraints. Thank you. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, while it's true that man is born for trouble, God is good. It is also true, though, that we can barely tolerate it. Oh, Spirit of the living God, would you work in and through us, giving us strength and patience and love to be molded into the people of God you would have us be. With the presence of the Father, in the name of the Son, and by the power of the Spirit, amen. The benediction today, if you'd rise with me, I'll uh, share a benediction. Um, the benediction today is from a, 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 a text that uh, uh, Phil brought up, First Peter, but this is from a little bit later than what the text he mentioned. This is from First Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, adapted. May the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little, restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Go and be a blessing as the blessed people of God. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.